Hello, my name is Jamila Rizvi and this is Anonymous Was a Woman, a Future Women and Penguin podcast. This is a show about books about women, books written for women and about the women who write those books. My co-host is Astrid Edwards from the Garrett podcast and our guest today is best-selling author Rosie Waterland. The theme of today's episode is loneliness. Oh, Astrid, it feels rather acute for us to be discussing loneliness in the middle of a pandemic when we have literally all been told to go home and stay there. Have you been feeling lonely? I have been feeling lonely. I've been feeling a bunch of things that I don't even have a word for. But yeah, my goodness, this is a different world that I was not necessarily prepared for. What about you, Jam? I have actually been mostly okay. And I think that's because I've been so completely connected online. So I have been getting that sense of being around people in a big way. However, Helen McCabe, who is the founder of Future Women, the other day she cancelled our morning meeting. We didn't have anything urgent to discuss. So she said, just get on with your work. And my immediate thought was, that's my opportunity to, to see people. Because outside of the people that I'm living with, the people I work with, seeing them through a Zoom call is is a real highlight of the day. Okay, so this is one of the differences between us, Jamila. So if someone cancels a meeting on me, even in this time of the great lockdown, I'm really happy about it. I really am not enjoying all of these uh, meetings and teleconferences. And I think that brings us to the difference between being alone and loneliness and also the difference between introverts and extroverts. And also where we draw our energy from, right? So much about introversion and extroversion is about how we recharge. And I think there are a lot of misconceptions about introversion. And I'm excited that we are going to be unpacking some of these themes with a couple of the books that you are serving up for us today. The introverts are taking charge uh, here on the podcast and Astrid's going to be leading our discussion most of today. But let's get into it, shall we? Let's start talking loneliness in literature. It is time for the introverts among us to shine. We are all stuck at home. We are away from our friends, away from our family. And most of us have an awful lot of time on our hands, time we weren't expecting. That is a good thing. And it is also a very, very confronting thing. And I think loneliness abounds. I'm finding my books are keeping me company. Both fiction and nonfiction are my savior at this time. I mean, they always are, but my goodness, in this time, books are my friend. Jam, what about you? Yes, books are absolutely my friend. But one of the things I'm finding even more than that in terms of books keeping me company is actually the potential for productivity as an author, uh, not just as a reader. And I don't mean to say that as in the pressure we're getting from some parts of the media that's like, use your isolation to learn 75 new yoga poses and pick up German in your spare time while you also bake a lot of sourdough, which I have, by the by, been doing. I mean it in the sense that there are some things about isolation that I think are conducive to writing. Firstly, I think isolation actually encourages empathy rather than discourages it. I think some time alone with your own thoughts makes you pause and start to think about those around you and start to dissect their thoughts. Often when you're in the middle of a conversation, you find yourself waiting for the other person to stop talking so you can add your bit 
And that's not empathy. That's not real conversation. But I think when we have some periods alone, we sort of start to reset in that way. And I also find being more isolated and having time alone, A, means I'm more creative because a lot of my creativity springs from boredom. (laughs) So once I finally have a chance to get bored and I'm not filling my day with something, that's where some creativity comes in. And I'm also more productive because not having to commute, all those little bits and pieces taken out of your day. I, I really do wonder, Astrid, if you think as someone who has interviewed so many authors about their process, is this going to be a period that gives us a whole lot of new fiction and nonfiction work? I do think this will be a period that gives us a whole lot of new work. I think I, I really don't want to be that person to put any expectations on writers. I think this time of life is hard. That said, I know that there are writers beavering away and having thoughts and either working on projects they already had or beginning new projects with a new outlook because the world has changed. As a reader, I find myself finally having this time to actually reflect more on the books that I read. Now, I already read a lot. I read because I work at a university teaching writing. I read because I have a podcast where I interview writers and often I'm reading on the clock. And now I have the luxury of sitting back and thinking about the works that I read. And so I think I'm a better reader at this point. I think I appreciate what the writers are giving me more than I normally have time to do. And I'm kind of embarrassed to admit that, but nevertheless, this is one of the silver linings in my isolation. I am all for finding some silver linings in isolation that um, I think is a really good and important thing to do to, to, to force ourselves to optimism in, in a sense. But at the same time, I think we also need to acknowledge the incredible downside and the loneliness that people may be feeling right now and that books can't fill the whole of total social isolation. I was reading a really interesting piece by Andrew Giles, who's a federal labor politician, and he was talking about the loneliness epidemic globally, but particularly in his case, he was speaking about Australia. And this was pre-pandemic. And he gave this statistic that just blew me away that firstly, more than 25% of young Australians say they feel lonely frequently or always. And that loneliness also coexists with other forms of disadvantage. Uh, A really uh, concerning predictor of loneliness, according to Andrew Giles, is poverty. 21% of people who earn less than $600 a week feel lonely more often. And when we're living in a situation where we are stuck at home and a lot of people are out of work or at least reducing their hours or their income is reduced, I feel very concerned about the level of loneliness that could be happening in our community that we're not even that aware of. The stats that you just mentioned, Jam, are really quite confronting. I am so concerned. I'm concerned about those that I know and love and I'm concerned about everybody who I don't know, but I know is somewhere at home, not necessarily in a situation that they would choose to be in. I really hope that anybody listening to us maybe gets like half an hour of pleasure. Yeah, I hope we are providing perhaps not good company, but company. <laughs> let's 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 set our bar low, shall we? We are providing nerdy book company because we love books and my goodness, books have saved me so many times in my life and you know, they're doing a pretty good job now. 
Our guest today is author Rosie Waterland. You may be familiar with her work, The Anti-Cool Girl, or the follow-up, which was called Every Lie I've Ever Told. She is now holed up in her bedroom writing her first work of fiction. Rosie, thanks for joining us. Oh my gosh, thanks for having me. How has your ISO time been? Has it been lonely? Well, it's been interesting because, you know, as you know, I just sort of had started dating someone that I'd been seeing for a couple of months. And when we all got given the work from home order, he lives in Adelaide and I'm in Sydney. And he said, oh, well, if I'm working from home, why don't I come over, you know, for a couple of weeks and we'll work from home together. And I was like, great. So he came and then they shut the borders. And so then... (laughs) then we were like, oh, I guess we're living together now. Uh, Accidentally moving in with someone during a pandemic. That sounds like a really good book. I'm actually really glad he's been here because I'm the kind of person who is so introverted and I love being by myself so much that it takes a while for me to realise that it has transitioned into loneliness and depression and isolation. I think I'm loving it. And then about two weeks in, I'm like, oh, wait, I need someone else around. So having him here has actually prevented me from going down a rabbit hole of, of loving being in isolation until I realise, uh-oh, this isn't healthy. So we're going to start with your first book, The Anti-Cool Girl. How was the process of writing that? Oh, well, you were my boss at the job I was meant to be working in at the time. <laughs> so, as you know, it was difficult. I mean, I, you were my boss at Mamma Mia and I took a couple months off. I think I took like two months off to write it or something like that. And that turned into seven months. So, it, it was hard. It was weird. I thought, especially because I worked at Mamma Mia, I was like, oh, we do hourly deadlines. Like, we're so fast. I've gotten so good at writing fast. I think I told HarperCollins it was going to take me six weeks to write. Like, I was so confident. I just saw Astrid laugh. (laughs) I was so confident. And I think what I didn't anticipate was when you are digging into difficult stuff that's difficult mentally and stuff that is about like past trauma and stuff that is, you know, you're basically, I was basically mining into the trauma of my childhood and my life. I didn't anticipate how difficult that was going to be. I wish I had known it was going to be that hard and I would have been a bit more forgiving with myself for how long it took and and how taxing it was. Rosie, I love hearing you talk about the process of writing and how difficult it was. The act of writing a book is a pretty lonely thing to do. I mean, ultimately it's Mm. you and the page, it's you and the keyboard, but it's also a really hopeful thing because when you write, you're obviously hoping that there's an audience on the other side who will read your words. What was that like for you essentially writing about yourself, really personal, intimate parts of your life, but for other people? That's a really good question. Um, You know, I, a part of me is a performer because I went to drama school. You know, I, I um, grew up obsessed with television. My obsession with storytelling my whole life was always about entertaining and engaging and it was always quite performative. And so there is something to be, I mean, it's why I still do, I try to still do one live tour a year because Writing can be such a, 
it can be. It is such a solitary activity and you're also not getting that instantaneous response and engagement that you do from other things that I, as a trained actor, like am very used to. And so it is kind of bizarre writing something, hoping that maybe one day it will be a piece of art that people engage with, but you will never know and you don't especially know while you're writing it what, if, when, how that response will take place. And so I just, you know, I, I hope that it will be engaging and I hope that it will get the response that I want, but I would never skew my writing towards engineering a response. The Anti-Cool Girl is pretty much a black comedy, I suppose, if we were going to categorise it, because it is hysterically laugh out loud, wee in your pants, funny. I remember devouring it in an afternoon. I just cancelled what I had on and finished the book because I couldn't stop. It opens with uh, you writing from the perspective of you being a fetus, still living inside your mother's womb. But it also has some pretty traumatic stories from your childhood. Once the book was out in the world and people were reading it, were there people who had had similar experiences and felt quite alone in those experiences who reached out to you? So, yeah, I've had a lot of people reach out and about different things. I mean, I think, you know, people will cling to the thing that they relate to. I've had some people get in touch with me because their parents were also you know, drug addicts and alcoholics. I've had some people get in touch with me because they were bullied in high school, which I was, which is, you know, a very universal thing across the board from, you know, the abusive, neglectful parent stuff, right to the funny sex period, whatever stuff. Yeah, I have a lot of people getting in touch, but it is the people who seem most profoundly moved are those who have had you know, disappointing parents, parents who abandoned them or abused them or weren't the supportive figures in their life that they should be and that they hoped their parents would be. And, you know, there's not a lot written about that kind of stuff, particularly by people sort of in the public eye. And so for people who didn't know that that was my background, I think it was quite surprising. And also I think there's an element of hope in there because I've had quite a few people write to me and say, you know, I, I had no idea this was your background and look at where you are now and it makes me feel like my background doesn't have to hold me back either. So it's nice. Rosie, you just made the completely true point that there aren't that many books by public figures about this kind of, uh, this kind of personal story. And when I think about similar type of books, the people who wrote them don't have a large public profile. We are talking about loneliness today and I'm wondering how you feel as, you know, as a famous person, as a person with a large social media following and people who care about you, but also having distinguished yourself, I guess, you know, by writing about this that a lot of famous people don't. What's that been like? Interesting. It's, it's, um, there's another guy, a comedian called Corey White, who um, has written a, an incredible book that was published last year called The Prettiest Horse in the Glue Factory. And he had a background, to be honest, so much worse than mine. Like his childhood makes mine look like the Brady Bunch. And he's a comedian, um, quite prominent in Australia. And we always joke with each other that we're the two go-to people in media. If there's a story like on Sunrise or The Project or something, and it's about foster kids or and they need someone to comment, they'll come to me. And if I'm busy, they'll go to Corey because we're the two. <laughs> <laughs> like, 
It's interesting, though, that I don't know whether it's a comment on the fact that people don't want to talk about having had a background like this once they've reached a place of prominence or if, and what I suspect is a lot more likely, that kids who've been through backgrounds like mine don't often get the opportunity or the privilege to reach that that place of prominence. And, you know, that's what's really depressing about it is that not enough kids who've had backgrounds like mine have been given the opportunity to get to where I have. And I was lucky that, you know, I've had a lot of people step in along the way and give me chances and opportunities that other kids like me didn't get. And I'm fully aware that if I hadn't been given those opportunities, I probably wouldn't be sitting where I am now. Yeah, it's strange that there's there's just not many people in the public eye. And I think it's because how are they going to get there? That's a wildly depressing and accurate reflection, isn't it? It is. You think of all the untold stories and the untapped talent that exists. It reinforces that, you know, there truly is no such thing as a true meritocracy. Like you cannot say that there aren't thousands of kids out there who could be brilliant storytellers, who could be, you know, brilliant at making television or writing books or being in plays or any, but they just don't ever get the chance to get into that level of the industry. Rosie, your second book is Every Lie I've Ever Told. And it's a series, it's a wonderful setup, this series of lies that you have told at various points in your life. And then you tell these stories that unpack why it was a lie. But the through story in that book is about what happened to you after your friend Tony died. So essentially, it's a book about your loneliness and your newfound loneliness without him. Yeah, it really is. And I wasn't expecting it to be that because, you know, up until he had died, uh, up until the point he died, it was just a book of funny essays. And then Tony died and, you know, he was essentially... I'd say the closest thing I might ever have to a husband. Like he, we lived together for more than 10 years. We'd known each other since we were teenagers. He was my life partner essentially at the time. And when he passed away, it just felt strange to write a book of funny essays. Like I, I, and I was having to write the book in the months after his death. And the only way I could figure to get through it was to weave in what I was going through and the story of my life with him into the book. So it, it what was meant to be just a, a silly book of funny stories from my life actually did become like a profound comment on, on, on the loneliness and isolation I was feeling having had the most important person in the world to me very suddenly disappear. It didn't sell as well as my first book. It certainly doesn't have the kind of um, like iconic status that my first book that the anti-cool girl does. But in the end, it became just a really beautiful tribute to Tony. And everybody who reads it says that they just feel like they understand who he was as a person and who he was to me and who he was to the world. And that's, you know, I was glad to be able to do that for him and his family. I remember finishing that book for the first time in tears and mostly being left with that feeling of having met Tony once or twice, just wishing I'd known him better and feeling like really robbed. Yes, so many people have said that to me. I think also it made people really look at the important friendships in their life and and 
be so thankful that they have them because, you know, you often there's that whole sentiment of oh, hold your family close and you and you don't know what will happen and so we're often told to you know don't take your family for granted but we don't often think that way about our friends and i think even i took tony for granted i didn't realize how significant he was to my life and how significant he was as a person who stopped me from falling into depths of loneliness that I quite easily can when I'm by myself. And he was the one who stopped me from doing that. And so when he passed away, I had to completely readjust the way I lived my life and the way I did my work and and the way I just operated as a person. Because without him, it was on me to make sure I wasn't falling prey to sort of depression and loneliness and mental health in a way that he always kept me well clear of. Rosie, I wish we could talk to you all day, but I want to say thank you so much for your books, for your columns, for your work, because I think, and the reason I wanted to chat to you for this episode is that you consistently make people feel seen. You make them feel less alone. And I think you help eliminate shame by doing that. You make people realize that actually we've all got a lot more in common with one another than perhaps we might think. Today, I would like to introduce you to Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking by Susan Cain. Jamila, dare I ask, have you come across this book before? No, Astrid, because I haven't had any time to read it because I'm always talking. You are an extrovert and this book is not actually directed at you. This book, however, was directed at me, a completely raving introvert. Now, I first read this book a few years ago. Sorry, I have to interrupt. Can you be a raving introvert? Well, I think you can. I don't know if you can. I am very much an introvert. (laughs) Now, I first read this book a few years ago. It came out in 2012 and I got there a few years later and it changed my life. Now, I'm quite aware of what a big call that is, but it did change my life and I don't say that lightly. I am an introvert, but not only an introvert, I am that kind of introvert that my teachers were worried about and every time they gave us personality tests in high school or in my professional life as a consultant, which I accidentally did for quite a few years, I really maxed out the introvert scale on those personality tests. And over time, I've learned to fake it in public, but I am that is learned behaviour and I am very much happy by myself living my introverted life. And for many, many years, through my teenage years and my 20s, I really thought there was something wrong with me. It was it was a feeling that I carried around with me and I didn't understand it. And when I read this book, it was a light bulb moment for me. I suddenly realised there is nothing wrong with being an introvert and it's totally okay to really not want to be around people for quite a lot of my time. I actually highlighted this book and when I finished it, I just put down my highlighter and started reading it again. And I've probably done that to maybe two or three books in my entire life. So as an extrovert who most of the world's writing has generally been directed towards for most of history, I feel like there's been a bit of a bit of a fad in the last couple of years where there's been a lot of articles and bits and pieces about introversion. I I feel like I'm constantly seeing a list or a BuzzFeed picture-y type thing about introversion. This is a book So we're going into a level of depth about introversion and the experience of introverts that we don't get from the pictures of cats, right? So I have a two-part question. Firstly, for an extrovert, 
what would they perhaps get out of reading this book? And for someone who was introverted and thoroughly comfortable with themselves as an introvert and didn't particularly want to change anything about themselves and felt like they understood themselves quite well, what would they get out of reading this book that they don't have already? Well, I'm going to go with the easy one first. Extroverts should definitely read this book. I mean, one third of people are, you know, on average, one third of people are introverts, two thirds of people are extroverts. And the two thirds of you who are the dominant part of this population are utterly terrifying. And I think that you should all learn about one third of your brethren and understand why those open plan offices or the enforced group meetings are actually really draining and there are other ways to communicate. And please, can we do that sometimes? Uh, So I think that extroverts really should learn about the rest of humanity, but also for introverts, I really hope that most introverts didn't have the experience I had where I thought there was something wrong with me. But I think that you're going to really actually enjoy it. It's validating. It comes with statistics, but Susan Cain writes in a really beautiful way. I should actually say Susan Cain did a TED talk. So a quick entree into this world of introversion is her beautiful TED talk where she explains her own personal experience, which is what led her to write a PhD, which became this book on introversion. I have to say I'm getting a bit of a sort of sick form of schadenfreude that the ultimate introvert had to use the platform of the extroverts, the TED Talk, to get the message across in the first place. Sorry, I'll stop. There's nothing wrong with you. Some of my best friends are introverts. Some of my best husbands are introverts. So I promise I am a fan. Astrid, talk to me about the nature of this book and the style because you spoke about the beautiful language that's used, but I also understand it draws on quite a bit of data to make the case. This did come from a PhD, which is why there is data in here, but that is not to say that it is some dry academic book. It is not. It is very much a live nonfiction that is engaging and tells a great story. My mother listens to this podcast, so mum, shout out to you, but I also found that my relationship with my mother improved. My mother is very much like you, Jamila. She is a people person. She loves talking to people and gets her energy from those social interactions. I have never, ever been that person. And we had quite a lot of friction as I was growing up. I didn't know why she was a butterfly. I didn't understand how she could be so out there all the time. And she probably looked at me and thought, what is wrong with my daughter? And I learned a lot about my mother through this. And I like to think that when she read it, because I asked her to read it, she learned a lot about me as well. Susan Cain is very much, there is no right or wrong way to be. It's just that if we're going to create spaces for our kids to learn most effectively, if we're going to create spaces for the people we work with to be the best employees or colleagues that they can be, We just need to understand that people operate differently in the world and not everything has to be designed for extroverts. And when we do have things designed for extroverts, we're basically making it more difficult for everybody to reach their full potential. We're talking today, our theme is about loneliness. And of course, introverts get a lot of their energy and a lot of their enjoyment from being alone as opposed to lonely. So if you're an introvert, and you are struggling to separate your desire to be alone regularly and whether or not perhaps you are starting to feel lonely and that's something you need to address. How on earth do you draw that line? Does Susan Cain shed any light on that? Being alone is an active choice I make a lot of the time. And my partner and I, one of the, one of the many reasons we are together is because we both like being alone together. 
It's a fantastic way to live, but that's not loneliness. I've seen a lot of memes lately, you know, saying it's the time for introverts to inherit the earth and we're all well-practiced at social isolation. And there is a little bit of truth in that. People who often choose to be alone in some ways may have been a little bit more emotionally prepared for what has happened recently with the lockdowns and with the isolation. But that's not to say that introverts and people who like being alone have to deal well with this. You know, isolation is this terrifying thing. But I do think that introverts and and extroverts will come at this new time differently. I will admit that I kind of brushed over this book as one that I wasn't prioritising in our enormous list of reading for this glorious podcast. And I feel really bad about that now. I sort of see it, I suppose, in almost an exercise in humanity. And it was a little bit selfish to think that I didn't need to read a book about people who aren't exactly like me. And as I mentioned earlier, some of the people I love most in the world are introverted. Uh, You among them. And so I think it's time for me to get reading and also get quiet and let you do the summation of this chat. I think that your husband would love you to read this book. And I also have to say, so while this book came out in 2012, to my great delight, in 2020, there is now a practical workbook that matches the original book. Now, Jamila, I am not normally a workbook kind of person, but this is something I actually find myself picking up in isolation and looking through and helping me reflect on this time when I am alone, but also sometimes lonely. And it's a wonderful experience for those who are listening and for maybe the extroverts who find themselves like my mother once did raising introverted children. I would also recommend taking a look at the 2017 re-release of the original book, but directed for teenagers. And this was called Quiet Power, Growing Up as an Introvert in a World That Can't Stop Talking. I wish someone had given me that book when I was a kid. Astrid, I have gone against everything I stand for and my terrible personality and let you lead this episode. You are, of course, also going to lead us in our recommendations. Can you start off perhaps by giving us a nonfiction suggestion uh, for us to read if we're interested in exploring themes of loneliness and introversion? I can, Jam. Now, my first one is Anne Boyer's The Undying, A Meditation on Modern Illness, published in 2019. Now, this is a nonfiction work and it is quite serious. Anne writes about her experience as a 41-year-old single mother who was treated for aggressive breast cancer. Now, of course, being ill is a different way of looking at loneliness and experiencing aloneness. This is not, and I need to say this quite explicitly, this is not your usual cancer autobiography. I have not had cancer, but I am a sick person. I have multiple sclerosis and I regularly consent to, well, basically poison being infused in me over the course of a day as part of my treatment. And that is a lonely experience, even though it is an experience that I willingly sign up for. Being ill, and I know that you know this, Jam, often means not seeing yourself written in stories or written in the media very well. Often the person who is ill or the person who has a disability is basically a plot point at best and it's basically caricature. So this uh, book by Anne uh, comforted me and made me feel seen and made me feel less alone when I contemplate um, my own illness and some of the treatments that I have. So I really highly recommend this for anyone looking for a smart book about the experience of being ill and the loneliness that comes with that life experience. That said, 
This is an incredibly cerebral book. There are actually repeated takedowns of pink ribbons and charity drives and all the friends who disappear when you get ill. So this is not your normal autobiography that makes that hero's journey, that survivor's journey and wraps everything up with a pretty bow at the end. But it's just an absolutely fantastic way of re-looking at that experience of illness and what it feels like for a woman to go through it herself. We talked in an earlier episode about solidarity that the act of reading can help us to empathise with others but also empathise with ourselves in the sense that books can make us feel seen and feel recognised and like you as a person who lives with illness and who lives with disabilities, I hate the way we're written in books so I'm always excited to hear about something, fiction or non-fiction, that represents my experiences in a way that makes me feel less alone. Speaking of fiction, have you got one of those that is around the theme of loneliness? I really do. Now, I would like to recommend Eleanor Oliphant is Completely Fine, which was released in 2017 by Gail Honeyman. Now, this was her debut novel and what a debut work of fiction this was. I actually have read this novel for the first time in isolation. It is one of the books keeping me happy and sane. And while I think I would have loved it at any time, I found it really resonated with me now. There are passages on human contact, on touch, on the everyday gestures that Eleanor, the character, doesn't have for much of the novel. And that is what we are experiencing now. And I found it beautiful and mournful and hopeful all at once. Now, Eleanor's story is quite a disturbing and difficult story that slowly unfolds over the course of the novel. So while her story is quite traumatic, this is still nevertheless an uplifting and life-affirming novel that I actually think is a fantastic one to read in isolation. Highly recommend. So Gem, I am aware that I have actually monopolised this episode. What recommendations do you, the extrovert among us, have about loneliness? I tentatively offer a recommendation on this theme, Astrid. I uh, have always been really extroverted and I was an extremely extroverted teenager. If anything, I've withdrawn a little bit as I've gotten older. But when I was 11, my mum, who is an introvert, gave me a copy of John Marsden's So Much to Tell You, which is uh, junior fiction or young adult. And it's a beautiful book as all of John Marsden's work is. He has such a amazing way with words in terms of talking to teenagers. He's able to put himself in the state of mind of a young person and go back there with such authenticity. And he actually writes uh, women characters or girl characters surprisingly well for an adult man, I think. Uh, this is the story of Marina, who is a young woman at boarding school, and we know that she has stopped talking. The only way we hear about her and from her is through the diary that she is keeping at the request of her English teacher. As the book unfolds, spoilers for the adults listening, we learn that Marina has actually been a survivor of family violence, that her father injured her in an angry moment and she's uh, been scarred quite badly in her across her face. So it's actually a story of disability as well. But for me as a young person, I remember feeling a real kinship with 
the central character, Marina. And it was the first time I remember as a young person really feeling that sense of empathy for a character who was quite unlike me, who was so introverted. And I think that's a testament to how well this character is written. So I think for young people who are introverts looking to be seen in fiction or extroverts who probably need a good dose of understanding, I would absolutely recommend so much to tell you. I think we've got time for Maybe just one more quick recommendation. Astrid, over to you. It is your episode. Well, we can't go past Sylvia Plath's classic, The Bell Jar. In this work of fiction and semi-autobiography, Plath crosses the line between reality and what she's experiencing and her loneliness and her mental health and the relationships in her life. And, you know, throughout all the decades, there have been very few works that capture what it's like to be a young woman and feel lonely and that the world doesn't understand you. Always a good book to go back to. I don't think you can ever go past Sylvia Plath. And if you've gotten to whatever age you are and you haven't read her, get on with it. Anonymous Was a Woman is a podcast made in partnership between Future Women and Penguin Books. We're produced by Bad Producer Productions. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find Anonymous Was a Woman. And while you're there, you may as well subscribe and that way you will never miss an episode. Bye.